Track Guide, Cross the Streams podcast, interview today, one of the more important ones I think I've done. We've had great guests. We've been lucky uh, to bring on a lot of great people on this. This is just a topic and a, and a guest who works in the industry, is an expert in a field that I'm very passionate about, which is combating toxic masculinity. Uh, Jeff Matsushita joins me today on the podcast from the Idaho Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. Uh, been in the industry since 2004, uh, works with young men men, college campuses, frats, teams, NFL team, and he's he's been doing the work, he's connected, he knows people, he, he speaks the language. It's just a phenomenal interview. I hope everybody listens. It's, it's one of those that I got to go back, even though I did the interview with him and talked, um, but I, it's one of those where there's so many nuggets of information in either of this guy's book or this person's podcast or this group that's doing the work here. Uh, that I think if it, if it's something you believe in and it's and it's a topic of how do we make men better than than uh, the maximum version of themselves, uh, Jeff Matsushita, our guest today, is amazing. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, you know, hopefully we can get Kane on next time. We're trying to get Jeff to be a repeat guest for us, but uh, very important interview we did. Very lucky to have him on, and uh, you'll you'll hear his background, uh, and hopefully you enjoy it. Cross the Streams podcast, Kip here, uh, going solo in terms of our co-hosts, as we've said the last couple of weeks, Kane and football season. If anybody of you know football coaches, salute to all the wives, partners, and uh, significant others out there with football coaches, because those guys go ghost. I mean, trying to get a hold of this brother of mine who I've known for 40 years is just something. But I knew that going into football season. When basketball season comes, he'll flip over and take over more of the pod. But I've got a great guest tonight. Um, those of you that have listened to us in the past and know any of the background, just for me personally, you know, something I care deeply about, have a lot of passion about, is developing the men on our team uh, to really look in the mirror and combat, you know, not combat necessarily, but really ask why they are the men they are today. And if they don't like some of the answers, and we, we want to talk about it. We want to show them options. We want to show them ways in our Teams of Men character building program that they can get outside of what society tells them a man should look like. And the guest I got on here tonight, we'll get into the story of how the two of us connected, but I'm really excited. Somebody else in the field that's been doing the work, um, Jeff Matsushita, we got a Montana connection. He's with the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. Jeff, my man, I am so excited. We've only talked personally. We've had 47 emails back and forth, right, in, in Twitter <laughs> exchanges. But I'm really excited to have you on the pod, man. I appreciate you making time for us. Hey, I appreciate it. 2019, man. I guess that's how we connect now. Right? Yeah, we both, and we it's funny. We were talking about we had to get the kids to bed. We had to get we had to get all the we had to get legislative approval to make sure we were on this thing. But we we, we made it at the right time. Yeah, you're actually you're cutting into some of my quality time with my partner. Yeah, I see. I'm going to be in trouble though, right? No, no. <laughs> supportive, super supportive, and. Uh, Again, it's somebody else that, that I get to talk at for a little bit rather than her hear my same boring stories over and over again. Right. So I see. Really Isn't that crazy? Up set us up. Yeah, man. The uh, Let's talk real quick because we got a hometown hero segment on here on the podcast where we're talking about 
you know, mainly Billings, but we've had some other Montana guests on. And you, you and I got a Montana connection. You know Danny Sprinkle. Go into your Montana background for everybody out there before we launch into your career and, and, and what it is you're doing. Oh, I appreciate that, man. It's the, the hometown stuff matters, and and there's a there's a sense of pride. Yep. And probably uh, maybe unwarranted uh, self importance about being from Montana. <laughs> yes. Uh, the few of us that survived. Know. Yes. Oh man, and then you add another layer on top of it, like you you know talking about being a brown dot in a bowl of milk. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah. My my parents still live in Troy, America. Uh, very northwest corner of Montana. Yes. Little Class B. Actually, it's dwindling down to Class C now. Is it really? And uh, yeah, I mean, it was. It's a, it's a. You know, so it's the lowest elevation in the state. And historically, it was mining and logging that were really that got this, the town on the map. Okay. Um, you know, the the mine kind of cut out in the early '90s, and the woods shut down, of course, soon after that. Yeah. So we went from three cedar mills in town to one and a half limping through. You know, so, but I mean, you know, I came up with, from this hard work ethic yeah, of what right. work was and people. So, yeah. you know, growing up in, in rural America, I had two options of what I saw. I saw teachers and I saw miners and mm. all the miners I knew, they were bent over. They were always dirty, but bent over because their bodies were shit. Yep. So I made the choice to, you know, fall into education, but my parents are still living in the same house they built 40 41 years yeah, that's, ago see my folks the same way 1979 the house is still there they're still in it, there it is. yeah yeah and they uh they both grew up in washington state okay uh my mom was a spokane girl and uh my dad was a central washington boy they met he uh they met at eastern washington okay they went to school he he was a wrestler um started at gonzaga finished at eastern um and became a speech therapist. And oh, wow. The irony is, he's he's one, he's Japanese, but he looks, <laughs> he's dark as all get out. Yeah. And he's about 5'6", and he wrestled at 135 in oh, college. Oh, Man, he, as a kid, I always knew him about 245, 250. Really? Was, yeah, yeah, he uh, he put it on. Yeah. They, they you know, they, they moved to Troy. My mom's yeah. legally blind. So oh. there was always this, this real difference I had growing up. I had a model of a man who you know, who did things that other dads didn't do. He yeah. cooked. You know, he, ah, he helped clean. Yes. Um, you know, and it was always and he was in service of others. He coached football um, in Troy, you know, for probably collectively 28, 29 years. Okay. Um, you know, but he had the same damn office at the elementary school. He was a speech therapist. So he drove bus for well, he's still driving bus now. He's retired from speech therapy. Okay. Just so that idea of consistency was really my roots. Like, yeah. You know, that, that's all I know. And, uh, you know, I think certainly a lot of things came prevalent for me as a kid, right? So mom's blind. Dad's, you know, half Jap or he's Japanese. And, and the way that we would get along was like being in service of others. Mm -hmm. and so that was always instilled to me about, um, you know, what are you doing? How, how are you making this program better? His his quote every year with his guys coming in was always like, you know, we want you to leave the program better than you found it. And how are you going to do that? Yeah. And so, you know, dovetail that in with the idea of like playing and, and living with no regrets. So, you know, building him up and he, I mean, he wasn't a great coach. He, he'd be the first to admit that, mm -hmm. but it was about relationships. And he'd often say, you know, some of these guys need this game more than the game needs them. Oh, that's you a know, great so, one. That's a great you know, line. 
in football, you can hide guys. And I always came up with that idea of like, so it wasn't about being the best X and O coach. Mm-hmm. It was, and I, I saw him as a model and, you know, still follow suit. I never want to be a head coach. Uh, yeah. I, I never want to be in charge of anything. You know, I want to be assistant coach. I want to be Dr. Phil on the end of that bench. <laughs> you come in, mm-hmm. tell me how you're feeling, son. Let's, yeah. let's talk about what, what color chart you're feeling right now. You need to right. this. You know, I mean, that's, that's my wheelhouse. Um, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't diagnose how to beat up a one three one zone to save my ass. So um, I'm going to sit and talk on the bench and yeah. we're going to laugh, we're going to giggle and, and lift you up. But that's that, that relationship piece is at the yeah. heart of it. We're living in rural Montana. Um, relationships always matter. Yeah. You know, we're three hours away from anything. So you had to make the family had to be there. That community had to be the family. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and you couldn't burn bridges because if you burn a bridge, well shit, the electrician might not come help right. you out. Oh man, how, well there's so many, there's so many good ones in there. First of all, your dad being a speech therapist, I had a stutter all through elementary school and one of my people that, I can't remember what, somebody asked me something about who's somebody that nobody would think had a huge impact on you, you know, because everybody, you know, defaults to coach or dad, you know, rightfully so, or mom, but I was like, man, without Mrs. Tupper, I never knew her first name, without Mrs. Tupper making me read out loud to the janitor first grade through sixth grade. There's no way I could do the job I do today. Like I had a really awful stutter, and now all I do is run my mouth constantly. You know, so that that's an amazing connection there. Um, and then the part where you were just talking about, you know, the X's and O's, the diagnosis. We just hired a, a new assistant coach, a new full time coach on our staff, Coach Chris Horton, all the way from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I won't bore everybody with the details of how I convinced him that Oregon was a great trade up from Florida. Um, but he uh, he was telling me, Coach, like we've been in the office ten days together. I bet we've done thirty minutes of X's and O's the entire time. And I was like, yeah, man, this is the job. The job is what they bring into this doorway, you know, with life, with with girlfriends, with family issues, with classes, with rent, with food. Like, all those are the job. The fun part that we might get to at some point is mixing in a make or two on the floor. So I, I completely relate to, to, to what you're saying on, on, on that end. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing about the, your speech therapist and, and- you shared about your wife earlier. You know, I think that this idea about how women have, have always been holding us up. And I think back to Troy and mm. yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of stoic men who, you know, who, who model things for me about manhood and what that meant. Yeah. It was, it was really these women who, you know, who, who caretake for me, you know, yeah. who were emotionally supportive, who challenged me, you know, and who called me out of my shit, being a yeah. punk, <laughs> you know, and, and they had no problems putting me in my place. Yeah. And, I always knew, though, it was coming from love. I can think of, you know, the, the family across the street, these two matriarchs, man. They they got stories for days and dirt on people <laughs> for two generations. Yeah. You know, however, they would never say an ill word about them, anybody. But they always were inquisitive and they always had questions. And, you know, they were supportive. Like when my mom wasn't able to, to get around out of the house or um, make, make time to, she could never drive, of course, but they would make sure they, my mom would, get to my games Mm -hmm. or my school functions you know they just had that look out and i can think of a handful of other elementary school teachers and who were all women yeah who had that that kind of same sense so when i'd go back as a grown man i still revert back to being a six-year-old kid in my first grade class (laughs) and you know nervous as hell right raising my hand to talk to mrs maffitt you know i mean it was it just is this idea of like a lot of times we talk about how masculine montana is but yeah behind the behind the curtain 
and I think this plays into my work and how I've been able to fall into this work. There have been so many women that have been holding me up for forever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and never have they ever asked for any favors, any credit. Um, they just do it. I think out of love. Yeah. Um, you know, and also out of probably just frustration that yeah. they need things to move. And so they know that, that, that they talk, start talking with us as men, other men will listen to us, you know, whatever mm-hmm. format it is, be it athletics, be it education, um, that they, they kind of, we become their speaker box. And I think that's the power in, in this work. I've been at the Idaho coalition for a while mm-hmm. and the opportunity to grow as a human being. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah I can go back to Montana and I always think fondly of it, but, uh, you know, behind all those stories, there's always women who are caretaking me. What give us the path, and and I it's it's so it's it's really refreshing to hear this just the verbiage and the dialogue that you're using and the kind of self critique and, and the analysis that you're using and kind of looking back at your upbringing and where you're coming from. And I know that's got to be a product of a lot of things, uh, but your your time in the field. But take us through how did you find yourself coming from small town Montana? Take us through college education into the work you know because it's not like there's not a lot of majors that i know of and there might be some now hopefully in the 2019 like you said 21st century we're like hey you're gonna be a woke man you want to study in that you know so so go go ahead take us through your journey uh arrogance was really what got me i I left montana thinking i was pretty good shit i knew (laughs) i couldn't play anything athletically, you know, at the University of Montana, so... Oh, you're a Grizz? No wonder Kane couldn't get on here. My goodness gracious. I'm you, scared. Hey, <laughs> this is the arrogant shit about Montana, man. You know, we... You raise it up. And so, I didn't go to school there, but it was that pride of yep. being ge- geographically located, right? Oh, so for sure. In all that arrogance, I thought, well, hell, I'll just go to Idaho and I'll try to walk on somewhere. I'll oh, either do track or gotcha. I'll try to play basketball. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that those didn't last um, more than uh, my first day on campus. I got kind of a scholarship for being a minority scholarship, mm-hmm. so I figured I owed it to him to go to these first like <laughs> orientation stuff. Yeah, uh, I was talking to this young man. He was a junior on the track team. He threw javelin, and so I was rapping with him a little bit about you know what he did and you know what his marks were. And I said, "Oh, I'm thinking about walking on the track team." He said, "Really? Well, what's your what's your PR?" And I told him, I said, like, well, 185. And he kind of looked at me and cocked his head. He's like, was that a high school jab or a college jab? And I only threw the javelin for two years. Okay. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. And I said, oh, a high school. I said, well, what's the difference? He said, well, the, the, the translation is you usually take about 100, 100 yards or 100 feet off of your, uh, your best high school one. So oh your PR God. in college would be 85 feet. Thinking, well, shit, that's done. <laughs> that's out the window. Oh man, I grabbed an extra plate of flute, uh, food and I walked out the door. So, uh, but no, college was college, and I was a knucklehead. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was—it really wasn't until I failed enough to I figured yeah. out and w- was able to walk away. So I went to school four years in Idaho. Um, two of those years, I was on academic probation. My jump shot was really nice, but the GPA was about a point five, point eight, something like that. You put a lot of time in the rec gym, not the library. Oh, buddy, I was an all I was an all star wreck. Just hero. triple doubles. Oh, buddy, <laughs> might have even been a quad. You, you know, get a couple beers in me, we'll inflate all that. Junk. Right. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I was an arrogant, egotistical, self centered kid. Yeah, and young man, and so I finally had the courage to walk away from college for a year. 
Uh, went back to Troy, licked my wounds, worked for the Forest Service, um, you know, and, and met a girl up in uh, Haver, Montana. Oh, man. That's where love happens. That's right. And, you got no choice. Freeze to death or find love. And I was up there for a bachelor party. Oh, so wow. my buddies who went to school in Missoula, after f- four years of being there, most of the bars kind of put a rule in place. Like, you come in here in groups bigger than four, y'all can't come in. So oh, gotcha. They went off-site, went up to Haver, Montana for a bachelor party and uh, walked into the gallery bar and... Uh, my wife, well, Julie was Julie's her name. Walked in at the time, and I, I fought. She turned around because they wouldn't let her bring her own beer in because <laughs> it was a beach party that, so they didn't want a glass on the floor. So she had to take her beer out. So when she left, I followed her out, and uh, and that was that was twenty years ago. Yeah, oh, so she was. She's a ball player. She's okay. the athlete in gotcha. the family. Um, and then. Uh, you know, we were long distance for a while. She came down to Boise to, to finish up school. Uh, had some buddies who lived here, and I uh, moved in, helped uh, helped a friend pay mortgage, and uh, eventually graduated from Boise State. But it was just I needed to get done. So yeah. I found myself in the sociology office, and I looked, and that was I needed what I need like sixteen credits or something. So I, you know, I found my way into the social department, and that that really changed my view. Mm-hmm. Um, I always had an interest um, in looking at gender and the way we were socialized with language. And it was just around the idea of how we as men would like lift each other up for like, yo, did you have sex tonight? Did you right. smash? Yo, right. Good for you. Right. Tell me about it. Did you hear you know, it? Yep. Yeah. And then the way we talk about women, like, oh, this dirty, you know, whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we're lifting up our boys for having sex. We're lifting, putting down women for doing it. But damn right, I wouldn't have. I was looking to have sex is all yeah. I was trying to do. And it. It, it, it never, I mean, it was, that was all marinating on my head. Yeah. Um, because I reflect back as a kid growing up, you know, my dad, dad's Japanese, I'm half. So we were the one and a half men of color in this, in Lincoln County, the smallest county in the state. <laughs> right. I look, I look back at the 2000 census, um, and prep for this, this conference I was doing and just talking about population and how, you know, diversity, you know, it exists in rural America, but it's pretty small. It was, uh, it was 0.4 on the Asian Pacific Islander dot. And that was my dad and me. I know they really blanked me. <laughs> well, I wonder then if you guys were 0.4, if my dad, Kane, and I counted as like 1.4 on that same one. Because didn't that make you mad back in the day when we were lumped in? For me, on the, as a Pacific Islander, I could never yeah. find Pacific Islander. It was either Asian slash other or just other by itself until like I got to college and I was like, oh. There's my. There we are. I get to check that box off. But go ahead. Yeah, all day. Yeah, it was this Asian at the time. Yeah, and, you know, 2000. Of course, they marked it up. But uh, shit, I mean, there's it, that identity stuff. It matters. And so mm-hmm. for me, growing up, I was always othered by my last name. Right. I mean, I can. I'm usually pass for white. Most people look at me kind of cockeyed and say, "What are you?" You know, right. real, You know that look. But uh, I just being other and it was going to hoop camps you know in in montana going to carol camps when yeah. i was an eighth ninth grade kid getting teased and so I, for me as i came into the sociology department fast forward to the late 90s in boise state um or early 2000s i kind of started putting this two and two together of like the way i was raised and socialized to treat women was the same way i was raised and people were treating me because i was japanese mm. not, not white yeah so, 
So that you intersection, know, the racial component kind of led you into, wow, there's one in the same here? Yeah, yeah. And what I found, you know, in doing this work and this violence prevention work is a lot of men, you start talking to them, of course, they don't want anybody to be hurt. But I can, I feel a connection with men of color mm. um, that we, we get racism, right? So yeah. it's an easier, easier lean in to start getting what sexism is like and how that could possibly feel for women. Gotcha. Not that we would have that experience at all. But right. We, kind of get an inkling about being othered mm-hmm. um and you know and that's to me that's one of those inroads when we have conversations with men is just that we've all had pain you know and we all have women we care about so yeah how do we link those up and go forward and and, and in all the honesty i'm a better human being because i've been at the idaho coalition i've i've gotten a space and at, well one i've been paid to do it <laughs> right name at but I've had the, the opportunities to start working on myself and, and start right. you know, reconnecting my head to my heart, you know, right. because as a young boy growing up, man, it was, it was never like, how are you feeling? It's like, boy, get out of your head. Be logical. Yeah. What right. makes sense? Yeah. Um, you know, be smart versus, you know, are you hurting? Are you scared? You mm-hmm. know, tell me how you're feeling. We, you know, I've been a part of that, you know, through the athletics and other worlds of where I cut boys heads off from their hearts with my words, you know, mm. verbal judo. Yeah, karate chop that stuff. So, was there? Can you think back to a particular moment in that social department? Was it a class? Was it a professor? Because I think back for myself, so many crossovers from from your story. uh, But I can remember taking a gender. I needed another elective credit because at a liberal arts college like Willamette University, you can only take so many classes in your major. And I said, well, son of a bitch, I'd rather take, you know, what was it, business, government, society, or something that I thought was more relevant. But they were like, nah, you got to take another elective. So my wife was in gender roles in America. And I was like, you know, Kelly's going to, she's my ride anyway. I might as well just take this class. But then I, I remember our first drive back from that class and her going, so what'd you think? And I was like, man, he's off his rocker, Professor Bob McDermott. He's crazy. The hell's wrong with him? But then, as the year, as the semester progressed, I was like, "Oh my god, I think I get it. I think I know what he's saying." I'm, am I on the other side of this thing? And it was a whole. I from that moment, like you were talking about planting a seed or kind of starting to see. Well, I really believe in this. Holy cow! And it was from Bob McDermott, like challenging me daily in that class. Is there something similar like that for you, or was it just that time period for those sixteen credits? It was it was the extra credit because I had, had not made enough classes, and so uh, I needed extra credit to get at least a C. Um, there was a film screening of the movie Tough Guys. By Yo, Jackson, Jackson Katz. We show it. God, there's, keep going. Uh, Jackson Katz is on our must must view list for our program. But keep going. Yeah, I agree. He, you know, Jackson didn't come out at the time. It was uh, one of the producers, a guy named Suit Jolly, um, from Media Education Foundation. But he came out and screened the film. And it, it, you know, the film. I think all your listeners should, should at least steal a clip right. on YouTube and look at it, right? Yeah. But it's about pop culture. Now, granted, it's the '90s, mm-hmm. but I do believe it's still relevant today. And it's, yeah. it looked at this. The the one clip from that movie that sticks out was this uh, increase in masculinity, the escalation of violence, and they used TV like male heroes and, and macho heroes. So they start talking about Humphrey Bogart in the 1950s as a man. Um, but you know, Demir in size had a trench coat and his, his gun was like a little Dillinger 22 or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Four bullets in it. You know, you jump forward into this, into the seventies the and it was like dirty Harry. So Clint Eastwood, 
you know, and not only is he 6'4", but he's got this big-ass gun that puts holes in the wall the size of a fist. Yeah. And then, you know, they go to the 80s, and it was Rambo, you know, and his body, mm-hmm. in Jackson's words, or his body becomes the spectacle now. And, you know, unlimited ammunition and a, an amazing shot from shooting <laughs> from the hip machine gun. You it know, was then, spray rifle, yep, yep. All day, and then it, but, it, you know, the film was produced in 99, and so it culminated with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. So not only is he a huge physical specimen, but he's got these cyborg weapons that create mass destruction. Right. So it talked about this escalation of manhood represented in films. Oh, and that man. just that, that touched me like there it is. Yeah. Um, always trying for me to be one up, always be better than somebody else. Yeah. And, and that, you know, what I did was still never enough. Um but looking at how my dominance is my one way of I could have some power. So, I mean, I, I got to come clean. I've never been in a fight. But right. Boy, I'd run my mouth. <laughs> and I was hung out with big dudes. Right. right. So, I was a swift nut kicker in, in junior high, high school, early college. You know, my 40s now, I'm not, I, I can't run. I wear, you know, non-lace shoes. I'm not going to kick anybody in the nuts. But yeah. It was always that piece of like that that mouthiness and not being secure enough. But boy, I wasn't. I was going to put my front on hundred mm-hmm. percent, and you were going to get tore down with my mouth. And and it was that same escalation for me. It always it was always just growing and trying to gain more power and more more self assurance. Even though I was a paper tiger. Mm-hmm. 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 So that film really stood out. And then you know, and I had a professor, Marty Orr. Um, who took some pity on me. Uh, he, he let me just open study this class. He gave me an assignment. He said, write me a paper. And so um, at the time, Julie and I were still dating, but she was student teaching at an elementary school. So I went and I observed the playground. And I had this gender role thing in my head around, you know, this man box idea that, you know, Paul Kivel and, and Tony Porter with the call to men has kind of brought to light. Yeah. The way our words are talked. So from we talk about, telling boys to man up and toughen up and you know those three words are pretty powerful and really what we're telling them is a whole mix of things of being dominant never show fear be a leader um always win and take risks you know for a short end mm-hmm. so I, i'd watched the playground for about a week i observed these kids and i saw the boys being very active and and you know dominant and it was all physical stuff and then i looked at the, at the young girls and they were they were using words and they were bringing people into play and they had some pretty good barriers. I saw of like, you can't play like that. If you do, you're gone. Mm-hmm. Right? But there were a lot of words that were expressed to doing it. So my paper for Marty Orr, so I could get a passing grade was just to write about gender norms and how we are socialized based on the bodies we were born into. Yeah. Um, and that, again, I parallel that with the way I was raised and, and treated being half Japanese I was told different things, the way I was supposed to act and behave and be good at and like, even though I, I'm terrible at math. Julie does all of our numbers. I don't <laughs> even do our codes or our bank accounts, right? right. My dad is frustrated as shit that I can't add and, and never have, I, but I never had an inkling to it. So it was just the single story that people try to put on you based on identities they see versus who I really wanted to be in my heart. And you know, I was never going to be a, a kung fu mathematician. I was going to be some nonprofit, you know, kind of hippie. So, were you as you went through this, you know, kind of emergence into realizing where you fit and what you wanted to do? 
did you did you vet some of these ideas with Julie? Like I found myself even in building the program for our current team in 2013, like coming home and saying, God, have I been doing this our entire relationship? Am I this pig? And, you know, in different conversations with my wife or, hey, what do you think about this? I just saw this today. Can you believe men do that? And she's like, yeah. Oh, I'm aware. I, I, but you know what I mean? Did, did, did those conversations take place with you guys? Yeah, she's been, I mean, certainly through love and trust, but she's been my best educator. You yeah. Know? And, and I, I believe that, I don't think she's still told me everything. <laughs> um, yes. But I do know that she has been eyes for me, you know, as far as like the reality for her as a woman. Um, we were at a class last night at uh, Boise State, and we an activity kind of developed organically out of a conversation that Julie and I had. And it was around when she goes to the grocery store. I noticed that she'd always park up front and end under a light. And I, I would, I was kind of giving her shit about it. Like, come on, we can walk. We're able bodied. Like, yeah, yeah. You don't need to park like it was a front. laziness thing. Yeah, and and you know, for her, it was this habit, you know, and so. She had this habit because she had been taught all her life of stay in groups, don't go alone in the dark, be scared of danger, mm-hmm. of, of strangers. Right? Carry your keys like a knife, like a weapon. Yeah, yeah, the Wolverine game, yes. right? Like all that. And so, out of that, out of that conversation, we do this activity now. And so, usually, ask the men say, "Hey, the setup is: imagine yourself walking out of a grocery store, corner store, whatever. You know." Right, you're pretty familiar with sun's going down. It's not dark yet, but the sun's dipping. You walk out of that store. What's on your mind? Yeah. More often than not, the young men say things like, you know, I spent too much money. What are my boys doing? Um, damn, I'm hungry. What am I going to eat when I get home? Mm-hmm. Where to park? And towards the back, they're like, you know, I'm scanning the parking lot. Like who's around me, you know, a little bit. Yeah. But, but I flip it. Then you start asking women and it, I can't keep up with writing. They're like, Oh, well, well, before I even get to the store, just like Julie did, I park up front under a light. And now that there's cameras everywhere, I make sure I park in view of a camera. When I come out of the store, it's one bag or 10 bags. I put them all in my left hand. I'm right hand dominant. My right hand's in my pocket with my oh. keys like Wolverine. Yep. As I walk up to my car, I'm looking in the back seat. Is anybody in there? I get in. I put all my groceries in the front seat, flip around quickly, lock the door, head up. Anybody follow turn my car on, pull out of the lot. I look up one more time to make sure nobody's following me. And then I go home. Mm. Right. And, and for Julie though, it took a while to get that to come out because it was such a habit. And yeah. it's so ingrained in her about her, her self protection was determined on her. Right. And in you know, some of these conversations last night and, and others with men, we always got to ask, well, who, who are these women scared of? <laughs> yes. Us. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and that's, I think, where there's, but there's hope to this, that we know with the, the, the 50, 60 years of good data around prevention, that most men will never be physically or sexually violent. Um, I've heard Tony Porter say this a number of times. He, he pulls the number, it's around uh, 12 to 13% based on the Federal Bureau of Investigation statistics around huh. interpersonal crime. Right, so it's a small percentage of men that make the choice to be physically, verbally, emotionally, and sexually violent. All the while, the overwhelming 85, 88% of us will never be physically or sexually violent to anybody. But the question keeps coming up, why are we so silent when when mm. our brothers, when mm-hmm. our boys, when, when men we care about 
are choosing to act in a way that's harmful and why are we quiet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the way I, I i when i stumbled into this job back in 2004 with the idaho coalition um i was fortunate enough to have a really strong female mentor she was fantastic and she schooled me up in domestic sexual violence but she really didn't know what to do with me as far as engaging men and at that time there was a small grant that the the coalition was awarded from the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare. I think it was like $15,000. And they said, we want you to engage men. And I said, shit, about what? <laughs> and, you know, I stumbled around for a couple of years, but then um, uh, a man moved back. He, he's from Boise. He was at the University of Montana. Okay. And he worked, worked at the Women's Center, and he was doing violence prevention work. So... Some mutual friends connected us up, and and Brian has been my uh, I, I love Brian. He's been a dear friend to me, a mentor, a pal, and somebody I have this vulnerable relationship where I can check in with mm-hmm. who who has had similar experiences and expectations. And so Brian was really my first educator around this men's movement that came up in the '60s. And Brian has this great analogy. He said. The domestic violence world started really around kitchen tables, you know, where women were who, who were being abused uh, would call a friend in the middle of the night and they'd get together over a pot of coffee at the kitchen table and they'd share their stories you know, you know about how they were beat, what the, the tactics were, what words were said to them. You know, and, and a lot of this work was credited with a woman named Ellen Pence out of northern Minnesota. Um, and they created this this tool called the power and control wheel out of a lot of these organic conversations over years of women talking and sharing. And so this power control wheel was one of the first viable like tools that were used to say, hey, domestic violence is a real serious issue and, and we need to have it, you know, people take note. But that powerful tool came from the kitchen table. And that's where this this the Violence Against Women Act and other large organizations like the Idaho Coalition uh, or the Oregon, uh, the Oregon Coalition, they got their funding from it, but it started at kitchen table with women sharing back and forth because they weren't believed or they were told to, they were asked questions like, well, what did you do to piss him off? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You, you deserve, if you don't leave, then you kind of deserve it. But I, I'm, I'm belating the point, but the, to me going back with this kitchen table is where this movement started. Mm-hmm. But for us as men, we were late. And I mm-hmm. came into the work when it was already professionalized. Like I said, I got paid to do this work. I wasn't volunteering. Um, you know, I grew up in a home that was loving and safe. I never experienced any violence at home. I never saw my dad put his hands on my mother. So I I don't never lived this life. Um, but I came to it because I got paid. Yeah. And so for us as men, women had had made this a professional, serious, valid uh, organization and a, and a cause. So now that we're getting more and more men to coming into this work, we need to get away from the boardroom. We need to get back to the kitchen table. Mm. We we need to have these kind of conversations like you and your brother do with other men, you know, and other mm-hmm. folks in the, in the athletic world. And mm-hmm. but just goes back to like connecting ourselves. Yeah, we know the shortest distance between two people is not statistics; it's a story, uh, and it's that heart point. space. Yeah, the. Talk to me. That there's so many things in here that are, that are just a, a very very intriguing. I already Googled and looked up the power wheel, and we're going to drop that in our program immediately into uh, some discussions. But talk to me when you give me your day to day with the coalition. You know, give me 
What does it look like for you? What are you scheduling? Where are you headed? Because I know you've got varied experiences, various groups of men you're dealing with. Take us through that day to day in trying to spread the word through your through your job. Yeah, you know, so we are a grant funded organization, so we have deliverables, things we you know we we write into a contract, say we will do, and then we got to go do them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we what we do know to be true is one, you know, in this in my body, uh, I can talk to men. And, and unfortunately, with sexism, men are going to listen to me yeah. more than they're going to listen to the women who for 15 years have been my educators, you know, yeah. or, or 20 years, Julie, who's educated me. So I feel that's part of my responsibility to be that speaker box. Um, the education I've gotten is, is women's truths and their realities and their traumas. They've shared and not with the hope that, that I wouldn't be a batter, but the hope that I would talk to other men and give give men some inklings and space to talk. So day to day, we do a reproductive health curriculum, talking to young boys and young men around reducing pregnancy and sexually transmitted infection. But we believe to get there, we got to talk about manhood. We can't just roll right. out a box of condoms and say, you know, put your Jimmy hats on and, and go get it. Yeah. We got to talk about what those pressures and expectations are for these young, young men. Right. So, uh, we use a lot of music right now. Jay Cole has been somebody I've been mm. really vibing with. Um, and one song in particular called wet dreams. Uh-huh. That's um, an amazing so the story of his first time. Yeah. And it actually and, and gives that, feelings of, gives his thoughts about what he was thinking rather than, Oh, I'm going to dominate. It's going to be a 40 minute porn session. You know, I don't want to nut too quick. Exactly. All those vulnerable things. And nobody says that. Yeah, absolutely. Nobody says it out loud, but boy, that speaker in your mind is sure going off. At least it was for me, yep. you know, and, you know, is it big enough? Am yep. I going to do it right? Is she going to get off? And, and all that junk. But the way we mask that as men is we, we, we just, we front. Mm-hmm. You know, he says in the song, we put that mask on and we lie. Um, so I think the tool with, with this reproductive health work with men, we use a curriculum called Wise Guys. And we go into juvenile juvenile detention centers, um, alternative high schools, and live in drug and alcohol facilities. And we talk to, we have conversations. We're not educators. We don't believe we're, we're we, we convene. We convene space to have conversations and we learn we're vulnerable. But we have to model that because a lot of these young men have never um, had that permission mm-hmm. to, to share. And so, again, a lot of my my work is and who I've become is as a result of these educators, these young men who teach me. Yeah. They give me the freedom to, to express and say I don't know, mm-hmm. but I'll find out. Right. And so we we talk about those, those pressures and, and goes back to that man box is, is the fundamental teaching tool we jump off from and the pressures in those three words of be a man. And all those expectations. And that's where we start. And we carry that that theme throughout our 10 sessions. Um, and really about the, the pressures. And, and how do we how do we start peeling off these masks? You know, you, the, that great film, uh, The Mask You Live yep. In. You know, and, and that is just a vulnerable, raw piece. And a lot of us are walking around hurt. But you would never know it because the armor we put on every day is shiny. And it's, it's it looks fresh. But... There's always those weak spots in that armor, some places, and mm-hmm. so it's a daily thing. And and again, it's taking another song from J. Cole, but uh, his song uh, "Folding Clothes." 
Mm, I, I didn't even think of this application. It's amazing. Keep going. You know, and, 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 but again, I credit these young men who, and young men, I think Jay Cole's in his early 30s, but he had the courage to not only put those thoughts on paper, but then he put them onto an album. In a totally, on- what you you know, many people would say, hip-hop could not be more toxic for a vulnerable yeah. man. Correct? You know. Oh, 100%. I came up in the era of Uncle Snoop, right? Oh, Remember, yeah. I'm two, but, I still got you know. Tupac posters in my house, and my wife won't take them down. Won't let me, I won't, don't let her take them down. <laughs> but there's a, lot, there's a lot to figure out with that, right? I wonder why you call there you is. bitch, and then dear mama, and then keep your head up, and then check out time. Ah, keep I, going. Oh, we could digress. That's a whole other podcast, right? Uh, sign me up for that one, man. <laughs> you know, but using these... these these songs that are relatable to these younger men, right? So for them to see, you know, they know the lyrics, they know the beats, but they actually don't listen to the words. So what we do is we print out a sheet, we print out the lyrics, and we just, we sit in a circle for a group. We want to be able to see each other, right? There's old magic in sitting in a circle. Yeah. And and, and it's it's a, it's exchange and it's a convening. So the activity we do usually to open up is we bring a song in that's themed with the topic. And with Fold and Close, it's usually our second or third week. And it's around this new idea of masculinity, what's possible for us as men. If we reconnect our heads and our hearts and we are full human beings, then, you know, according to J. Cole, we're going to sit at home, watch Netflix with our with our partner. We're going to, you know, start eating almond milk and raisin bran, you know. <laughs> and we're going to be healthy people. But yeah. it's not, yeah, but we need, the women have been the ones who are teaching us and loving us enough to give us that space, right? And then I love that the song progresses. He talks about the appreciation for his partner. She's pregnant. You know, so he thinks he could at least fold clothes for her and, and pick up around the house because she's carrying his seed. You know, and so they transition out of the song and it comes down to this other real vulnerable part, which is a lot more like Jackson Katz's work with tough guys. Of He talks about brothers, is, brothers are hard. We wear our masks backwards. It becomes it. You know, he talks about how to put that smile upside down. And every day when you walk out of the house, it's uh, it's a job interview. You know, if you say the wrong thing, somebody's going to test you. You know, and so I think from the conversations I've had with a lot of men, they really get that piece of how they're really measured by everything that comes out of their mouth, what the how they walk, the clothes they put on, you know, how they talk about women because it's not what they want to be. But they want to be. They don't want to be perceived as soft, so they go to this really false idea of what it means to be a man. Mm-hmm. And I think the beauty of these new new cats coming up in music that are making powerful music is they're they are just they're starting to break down walls. And yeah. that box is going to have holes into it now. We can leak in other things like emotionally intelligent. Um, you know, be able to tell your man, "Yo, I'm shook right now. Yeah. I need some help. What can you do for me?" Yeah. Or I can, can I, can I come over and just talk to you? You know, I, damn, man, I don't know what to do or even crying. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So the, the, the whole, the man box isn't terrible in itself. I think the terrible part about limiting what the expressions of manhood is, is the trap. But some of those other pieces that are placed in the expectations I always got was, you know, being responsible, uh, being respectful, being a hard worker. Yeah food on the table like those have a job you know i mean those are admirable great qualities but if we you don't allow young boys and young men to show emotion and even have the verbiage to express emotion 
I think that's where we're, we're doing the disservice and we're keeping their heads cut from their heart. Talk to me about your work, you know, in this avenue and maybe some other avenues that, that you've been able to, to help out in with teams. Uh, I think that's in a lot of things. A lot of the places you mentioned that you're going in with the Idaho Coalition are amazing locations. One where I, you know, the team locker room, you know, a team room is one yeah. that I identified in, in 2013 by I. That's that's such a misnomer. So many other smarter people, like you've mentioned many times, helped me kind of pull the veil back. Like, yeah, that team room that you take so much pride in, that's where your guys want to be. Have you sat down and listened to what's going on in there? And that place is where they exist. And if so, these all we've really tried to dive into the team room out has got to be a focus of this exact stuff you're talking about. So talk about your work with teams, what teams, what levels, where at, and kind of how you've attached this same training and thought process to a sports group. Yeah, I think there's, and this isn't, I'm not unique in this, man. Like I'm, again, I'm, like you said, I'm, I'm stealing all kinds of stuff from people are borrowing. I was a, you know, in the education world, there's no unique thoughts. Right, so, same in coaching. Uh, I didn't invent ball screen, but we run the hell out of it. <laughs> you know, so I think of guys who, who have, have taken time or uh, to put things on paper or even make phone calls with me and my mentors. Um, uh, there's three that come to mind. A guy named Dick Bathrick from Men Stopping Violence out of Decatur. They were one of the first men's organizations where they're talking about men who are arrested for batters. So they took that space and looked at what, how can men heal? Right. And so that was one, uh, Joe Ehrman, uh, the amazing guy with, uh, former NFL player. He wrote two fantastic books, but the book that, uh, one I'm going to send you, uh, it's called inside out coaching, okay. transformational coaching. And it's just, he really, there's four simple questions. And Is he the one that was, he was a major interviewee on masculine in, correct? Yeah. yeah, yeah. He played uh, for the Steelers or Colts or somebody. He was phenomenal. He was a Colts okay. through and through. And, you know, and, and his book, he asked four questions uh, for us to reflect on as, as men. Coaches, parents, teachers, men in the community, all of us can ask the same question, phrase it differently. Uh, what does it feel like, or why do I coach? Why do I coach the way I do? What does it feel like to be coached by me? And how do I define success? So he spends this book, and it's in a reflective journey for us to, as men to read it, or coaches, parents, anybody. It doesn't matter what gender you are. Um, but specifically with this conversation about men, yeah. how, do we, how do we show up and why do we do what we do? You know? And so Joe has shared you know, a lot in his workshops and his TED Talks, and he's been really vulnerable looking back. And so as a coach, he uses that sport as a platform. And so Joe has an organization called Coach for America, and they go around the country and they are really inviting coaches in to be reflective. And, and, and often we as adults point our finger out what these young guys need to do, what you should be saying, <laughs> what yeah. you need to learn. And I think the, the trap of that is, is we don't spend enough time pointing that finger inward. Right. So Joe has done that. And I believe that's the important work that I get to do through the coalition now is, yeah, we get to go out and do these reproductive health curriculums or go on college campuses and talk with players. That's, that's great. And fraternity members, that those are important conversations. But uh, for us as men who are in that middle management, we're kind of the middle children right now. Mm-hmm. Kip, we're in our forties. You know, Yo, we're not the OG. Don't remind me. We, we're, we're, it's still a beautiful spot, man. So <laughs> you know what? The OGs, and I think these three men I've mentioned: Dick Bathrick, um, Joe Ehrman, and my third mentor is Tony Porter. 
like these guys are OGs, right? They have yeah. done the work and continue to do it, and they're still pushing boundaries. Uh, we're not in our 20s, so the young men, you get the chance to be in front of every day and recruit on the campus of Willamette through your team and, and other young men on campus. You know, they're, that, they're the come-up generation. But right now, we're in that middle child stage, and, and what work are we doing? And so my opportunity to go on campuses um, and talk with fraternities, um, male athletic teams, is just talking around how we as men can be better teammates, mm-hmm. you know, and, and leadership is certainly an inkling into that. But uh, we talk about our responsibility as men. So we know most of these men will never be, you know, committing physical or sexual harm. However, from their platform as student athletes, what kind of things can they say on their, on their social media account? Mm, and it's not yes. our words, it's theirs. Right. Uh, Which carries more to- weight anyway, right? Yeah. Oh, 100%. And, and they do these things through their lens of <sighs> Esther Stoller is a, the executive director of Futures Without Violence. She has this quote said that men are permission seekers, right? So it's important for us as men to give credit where credit is due. So I've taken that quote from Esther Stoller and I apply it in. Like, I think when I go onto a campus in front of a group of men, um, I believe I'm a permission giver. And mm. so the way I show up and how I talk, um, the things that I share that are maybe a little more vulnerable than you'd get, you know, in, in a mainstream setup. Uh, again, I'm not unique. I'm not fantastic. I just get the space to process and unpack all my shit. Yeah. And pay yeah. for it in front of groups of men. And so by modeling that unpackingness and asking questions and sharing some reflection time, I'm always impressed and, and appreciative that the young men are so willing to lean into those conversations. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. granted, they're not. You know, they're not to the place they're going to be, you know, identify as feminists and, and right. start doing this work. But they're moving along on their own path. And, and the conversations are start coming around of like things that you talked about, you know, driving home from class with your, your girlfriend or wife at the time was those gender classes where I can't believe dudes show up like that. Right. And by the end of it, we start getting out of like, holy shit, I can't believe I say that. Yeah. I can't believe I think that. Yeah. So it's it's little steps, man. It's not. Again, in these sessions, we are not ending domestic sexual violence and stalking in our 90-minute, two-hour session. But what we are doing is trying to plant those seeds and give permission for these young men to start thinking in ways outside of the however many years they've been socialized. Yeah. Start thinking about being healthy. And and a lot of the credibility comes from certainly the NFL. You know, after the Ray Rice incident, you know, the NFL did a course correction. And so... um, a call to men is one of the national organizations that provides trainings and, um, with the NFL, uh, the NBA, major league baseball, major league soccer, and they used to do NASCAR. Mm. You know, so through those inklings of where these national organizations see validity in doing violence prevention work, um, that has trickled down now. So the work that, that we get to do here in Idaho with our high school kids and then on college campuses, it's seen as a valid piece. Yeah. So in the basketball world, you got, you know, Coach Popovich and, and Steve Kerr are two men who I've never met, but they stand out to me Yeah, around how they, they have made that connection between, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. and opening up those conversations in their locker rooms. You know, as black men, how does it feel to walk this earth and live in, yes, you're millionaires, yes, you're NBA players, but yet, as the example, um, Kyle Korver's reflection. Amazing, in the athletic, made, yeah. 
Yeah, and his his reflection of his teammates, you know, was, was harassed. And his thought was, I'm not saying it was proven, but his thought was it was because it was a black man walking out of a grocery store or a corner store. And he gets harassed by, you know, by people with power. And as his teammate, you know, what can Kyle Korver do as a white man? His voice is going to be listened to a lot more in a deeper, more probably like credible way. Right. And yeah. so that reflection he wrote was beautiful. And, and that's the power of this of this generation who's coming up behind us, that they they're starting to question the status quo. Yeah. And they really want to live full lives. So I, I can only imagine the way you shifted you know, your time at Willamette when you first started recruiting guys or mm-hmm. even when you're recruiting visits. To now, oh. you go into homes and do recruiting business. Yeah. I imagine there's a big shift in the life. Oh, light. it's not. It's uh, that's you couldn't be more accurate. You know, the the previous iteration of what I was about as a recruiter was the same as every other coach in America. Here's a highlight video. Here's the points per game. Here's a jersey number. Why don't you pick Willamette? And now we don't we don't even talk basketball. Um, and part of that, you know, I had a great question asked to me at the, at the conference, the NCAA Inclusion and Diversity Conference, and I'd love to hear your take on it. First part, because we, we, we have recruits now, and our guys, we recruit them to the character development program. We're going to challenge your concept of masculinity. It doesn't mean we're telling you you're X. We're just asking you to tell us why you're who you are and, and, and grow from there. And we've had guys, that, my guys have come back to me and said, Coach, I, I just don't think he, he's not. He, he's not going to fit into that arena. And on occasion, we've, we've pulled our, our, our roster offer. And I had a great question from the audience there that said, well, Coach, how do you te- how do you make the decision between that's a lost cause versus that's a great opportunity for you to apply your program to? And I was like, God damn, that's a great point. So, yeah. you know, thoughts from you on that? Because there is a, you know, our guys are so attuned to it. I'm lucky enough to have guys that really buy into a lot of the stuff you're talking about and want to create that culture of this is the norm here to express feeling. This is the norm here to give a damn about other people, to treat women with respect, to treat lesser groups with respect. But also, all of you didn't start off this way. You know, I didn't start off like I'm not this Gandalf that had the right idea from birth, right? So thoughts from you on, on that question? Because it really, it, I mean, it generated a whole staff meeting. We met with our captains. I, I wish I knew the, the, the identity of that question asker because I would give her all the credit for stirring more conversation. Wow. Uh, that'd be tough on the spot. I'm yeah, saying. exactly. You know, that, that, with the microphone and the, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, maybe um, I'm, I'm sidestepping the question, but. Um, what I hear in that is you asked your guys. So I think as a leader, you are empowering those people who have, you know, it's, 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 it's it, yeah, it's your locker room, but really it's their locker yes. room. Right? right. So, um, that idea of going back to some of those old school mentalities of like, you know, you're only strong as your weakest link. Mm-hmm. If you play that into 2019, if, if they see a guy who's not going to vibe with, with, with their culture that you, you've helped create, yeah. you know, and you continue that by recruiting guys who, who buy in. So um, they're the ones that that's, if somebody's going to be disruptive in the locker room, uh, you know, 25 points a game, 10 rebounds, four, five, six dimes, that be damned. That kid is going right. to potentially cause some problems, as you yep. know, right? So, yep. uh, and determining who's a lost cause versus um, who's a project, 
I think that's where you, I really appreciate the way you lead. You, you left it up to the experts yeah. and, and your team, your young guys to the experts. Yeah. You the, know, but there's another part of me outside of the coaching world that I'd say nobody's a throwaway. There's, that's a great point too. Right. Right. I mean, we, we tried that. That was Australia. That penal colony system didn't go as well as planned. <laughs> we right can't here. just send everybody to Jupiter. We don't like no way. <laughs> Who knows where we're at with that. Right. So if nobody's a throwaway and and there's this our organization at the coalition has taken this new our way of being and, and framework started as a campaign but it's really leading into who we are. It's the phrase is we choose all of us. Oh wow. At first that's that feels amazing. great, right? That's yeah. sunshiny. But Dick Bathrick called me in it's about ten, twelve years ago. There was a coach in the area in Boise who was arrested for some lewd and lascivious conduct. In okay. And, you know, and I, I read this, I was, I was disgusted. I wrote his ass off and I'm done with him. Yeah. Well, Dick was in town doing a, a couple day workshop for us. And his question to me was, what are you doing to keep him in the fold? Mm. You know, my eyebrows go up like, I'm not doing a damn thing. Right. I'm not going to be associated with that guy. Right. Right. Because if, if he stinks, that means I'm going to start stinking. So he's done. Mm-hmm. And, and I really, and Dick was coming from this place of love of saying, hey, he's still part of your community. He still had, was an influential coach to some young men. So as a basketball coach, as a community member, as a father, he's still going to be around. So what are we doing to lift him, to bring him back? Not giving him a pass. Right. But the conversation that if I knew him better, and this is the place where I go to, I think, with your team, if that conversation is, hey, we, we we hear you, we see what you're doing, but we're going to tell you this is our line. Mm-hmm. And, and we, on this team, we this is what we do. We don't use sexist phrases. We don't treat women like objects. And, and we believe women. You know, whatever your values are as your team culture, if your captains and your players are the ones that have that conversation with this young man, if who right now is riding the fence between a lost cause or maybe a project, if we start empowering that young man, if he's if he's willing to jump in yeah. and, and Great be point. okay with shedding some of that mask, right. saying yeah, man, I'm just front, I'm just bullshit to get along. I really don't believe that. Right. Okay. Now you can start with it, but you're on notice. Yeah. Um, what uh one of the men from uh, Ted Bunch who's the other co-founder of a call to men. I heard him at a conference one time tell a story. Uh, in his cul-de-sac, there was a man who was arrested for domestic violence. He was arrested for physically beating his wife. And and Ted talked about, you know, what they really wanted to do was go over there and beat the shit out of him when he got out of jail. Hmm, but right. One, that would put more men in jail. And two, it wouldn't do anything because he would still be in the house. So what they did was a group of men from the neighborhood got together. When he got out of jail, they knocked on the door and said, hey, man, we, we heard what you did. And we wanted you to know that we noticed. And as a man in this neighborhood, these are the expectations we got. Mm. You know, and so, yeah. they, you know, the way we were raised is, is to go, you know, wanting to go cause pain. But yeah. I, what they did, they leaned in with a little bit more love. And they set the expectation. Again, it wasn't a free pass. It was it was having that conversation with them and setting the bar higher, getting away from that boys will be boys mentality and raising up the expectation for him to say, as a man in this neighborhood, this is the way we act. Yeah. And I think that has a lot of power. So all the way back,
back to your question. No, it's yeah, amazing. Nobody's a throwaway. For sure. And, and what was our responsibility? And maybe, you know, maybe pulling that pulling that offer from him is the best damn thing that could happen when you communicate why you pulled the offer. Yeah. Because now the ball's in his court and he has a choice. He can change. He can start his change. Or he can go hide and he can find another program. If he's talented enough, somebody's probably going to scoop him up. Right. You know, and, you know, okay. But, you know, for you at Willamette and the men in your locker room, that's your priority. And the people on campus are that priority. So it comes down to setting the, setting the bar. And, and for those young men, you empower them to who are they going to bring into their fold. Yeah, it's their family. They can control hey. it. Where do you land? Now, one more question that I want to make sure you you're, you get you got time to tell everybody how to follow you, how to participate, how to help, you know, how to get informed. Question: Willamette, well, you know, kudos to the university, and I actually think it was led by a couple fraternity members who had reached out to me and a couple other voices on campus, and there was a convocation around masculinity. I can't remember the exact name of it. Um, that they invited the whole campus to. And kudos to the other coaches in the athletic department I exist at. There was a lot of mandatory attendee requirements from from coaches to send people to this, even if it was their first entry into a discussion about masculinity. But one of the questions that I felt drew up the most ire and or um, you know, pushback to what the message, you know, you and I both believe in and a lot of people are working on was well, what are you what is the end game? What are you trying to turn men into? Are you trying to make us women? And obviously, no. But how do you articulate? What's the best articulation against that? Like, hey, I'm a, I'm a this sport player. I'm going to say football. I'm not saying the question was from a football player, but I can't be afford to be soft in my game. You can't make me a you know you can't make me a woman. What are you, are you trying to make me the inverse of what I am? What's the how do you guys approach that conversation? Yeah, I think in that conversation, it's an either or, right? Mm -hmm. And and, and the either is I got to be a man or you're going to make me a woman. And the association we have with woman and feminine is weak, less than, no value. Um, And I think that to me is at the core of this, of where we have either or this and we devalue it. And it's a false binary choice. Gotcha. Gotcha. Totally. You know, so I, and I think the outcome though is it's not about, you know, cutting men's penises off or, you know, having them cry openly. It's shit. It's about being emotionally intelligent. I'll go back to the same statement. It's about for us as men to be healed Mm. and reconnecting our heads and our hearts. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and and oftentimes at a call to men, I've heard them say, my liberation as a man is tied to women's liberation, right? So in the interest of ending men's violence against women, I am really in the background and secondary I'm healing men, right? Because hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. nobody, I don't believe anybody wakes up in the morning and say, I'm going to rape somebody or I'm going to beat my partner. No, I don't believe that. I think we react because we're feeling insecure, not measuring up enough. And so what we turn to is how we've been raised in school and given permission to be, which is violent. You know, our acts of violence have been permissive, have been, have been given to us. And those are acceptable. Um, and so I think the shift is we're moving through um, these conversations with men um, is that we're going to heal ourselves and we're going to be liberated. And if we can reconnect our heads to our hearts, we can be full human being. And being full human beings means we get that full expression of joy, love, sadness, fear, doubt. But we get the full range. 
And I think that's the part for me that keeps me driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, have these conversations with men, and and I'm a I'm going to name it as well. I'm a self centered only child, so when I do <laughs> think, there's often some selfishness to it. Hey, um, yeah. I, I eventually, yes, I want to work myself out of a job, mm. and mm. and the world, and and as we're coming up, and we'll bring in parents to this. My responsibility now is not necessarily to all these young men, but it's really to these two two kids who are raised. Yeah. Yeah, and these young men right now in high school and college, they're going to be in positions of leadership very soon. That is going to have a direct effect on the on the world our kids live in, on yeah. the legislative things they put forward, on the laws and and the the norms they help create. Our kids are going to come up in a better world because these young men and young women are seeing the world through a different lens and they're questioning things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I read an article about uh, things that are going extinct because of millennials. You know, cars. Uh, marriage you know recycling is you know, straws like it was kind of this bullshit article around like oh these kids are making things bad but damn it is there why do we have to prescribe to a 40-hour work week right why do we have to prescribe to you know to, to grinding all the time having my phone on all hours of the night and keep working oh emails. the grind culture oh there's another podcast see we're just booking you for future ones we got a tupac reflections on lyrics and we the grind culture because I'd love to go to I'd love to die on that hill with you and eliminate it because you can imagine what coaches are like oh. with the grind culture. No, I should watch seventy four more hours of this film, even yeah. though I already am well aware we lost the game. You know what I mean? Let's go ahead, keep going, keep going. No, no, I appreciate. It. And there's that, and there's almost this like this worth and value of the more self loathing and beating myself <laughs> up that I do. Yes, that, I, that must mean I really care. Right? Yes. And so. I think that that bullshit into that, that these younger generations are pushing us. And so for, for me being this middle child generation right now, my job is to, to continue to listen to people who are harmed. And in our work at the coalition, that's often uh, women, women of color, you know, the margins of the margins, the women who are marginalized. So um, in Boise and in Idaho, we have a, a large refugee population, people who are being resettled here. They're not coming here because they want to. They're right. coming here because the country's been tore up, right? So those women come with a lot of experiences and trauma. So if we frame our work with them in mind, we, we call it the last girl concept. If we frame the most marginalized person at our center and work towards them, we drive and we build our programs, our curriculums, our outreach, our marketing campaigns that are all steered towards lifting them up, everybody benefits. Right. Yep. So yep. it's, 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 just, it's a pivot, but, but putting those who are most at harm and, and for, a, for me as a man, my job is to listen and to listen to people who experience harm. And oftentimes it's a lot of women. And then also is to give permission to these young men to have expressions that are different than what they may hear or see in the mainstream world. And third, and most importantly, it's at home. It's listening to our kids. It's being present. You know, putting my phone, leaving it in my car when I pull in, and and picking it up at nine o'clock once they're in bed. Mm-hmm. You know, and, isn't that amazing? That's a that's a fantastic point. My wife and I, and you guys have probably dealt with this. Okay, we're in the the twelve year old has a phone, the ten year old has a phone. No, like she can't make calls or texts, and we're constantly on the hey, you're gonna no no tech from four to seven, and at four o six, one of them says, well, how come you're on your phone? Mm. And all I got for him. Is well, I'm dad. And that that don't work, right? That 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 doesn't work. So we we just that's amazing you said that because we just had this like 
Let's sit down to the dinner table and look at each other and go, oh, shit, they got us. They're right. <laughs> that, that, that's on you, man. We stayed with the man-to-man principles. We got two kids. Yeah, we stayed with the zone <laughs> defense thing, man. We're, go down, man. We can't be doing that. Hey, how do people, how do they stay engaged? I mean, tell them about yourself, follows. Is it social media? Is it the website for the Idaho Coalition? How do people that <laughs> listen and want to stay up? Even if it's like, man, that guy has got access to knowledge. If I follow him, I might it might bleed over to me. Oh, well, I, I, my Twitter feed, I'm just going to name, and I'm just tagging, putting a heart on something and then retweeting it, man. So I think you and I have been linked up on yep. Twitter for now maybe 48 hours, and I've already bumped out two of your posts. So <laughs> none of mine are mine. I'm just bumping out other people's. But, you know, as far as the Idaho Coalition's work, um, I think the handle is around engaging voices okay. you know, on Twitter. Uh, Instagram. Um, our website is engagingvoices.org. Um, but you know, people have an interest in, in some of these ideas around violence prevention or engaging men work specifically. I, you know, I'd lift up a call to men. Mm, um, okay. Certainly, men stopping violence out of Decatur, Georgia. Um, men can stop rape out of DC area. They do some great work with. Uh, they're called Most Clubs, and it's around healthy masculinity in high schools and colleges. Um, and, I, you know, the problem is if you start naming things, you're going to leave somebody off. No, I know, and, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, I do believe in, in the work that Joe Ehrman does with Coach for America or Inside Out Coaching. He's fantastic follow. Uh, you know, Smitty Jackson Cats. Byron Hurt is a filmmaker. Yeah. He's Can a he make, what was it, Beats, Rhymes, and, God, what did Beyond he make? Beyond Beats and Rhymes. Beyond, yes, amazing. Cosign. Yeah. And so... And I think in the other part of it, and on the West Coast side, you know, you're looking at guys like Paul Kivel, um, who's run some amazing books. Men's Work is one of those that we talk a lot about with men and share it back and forth. Um, but I think the root of this for us as men, if, it's easy to sell and start talking about what other men, right, because we're, we're credible with each other. But for us, well, it's maybe for me, my challenge is really looking at, at women of color. And so Adrian Marie Brown has been a woman um, – she identifies as a, as, a, as a black, queer woman. And her, her website is fantastic. And she has an article that came out. She posted it, I think, around May or June, around patriarchy. And it was an open letter to men. Um, uh, I believe that is, is a, a fantastic piece, and it's an honest reflection. But for us as men, we need to be listening to women. And not just listening, but believing. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. it's... I had a woman tell me one time, it's really hard to listen with your mouth open, Jeff. Huh. You know, so for huh. me, you know, like, you know, deep listening is a, is a practice. Yes. And, you know, so, um, and I, I got to say, I'll, I'll give you a plug on, on your, one of the things I tweeted out was you're, you're looking at data of how much y'all talk at practice and measuring and having a metric with how much you talk versus how many reps. They're oh, 55. Get. You saw 55, 50 highs, and then our coaches a, a talk to reps ratio. And I think that's beautiful. I mean, I, I can make this connection for us as men out in the world. I need to probably say one word and probably listen to three, right? So a three-to-one ratio. Great if I'm going to talk a minute, I better listen to three. Yeah. You know, so uh, I, I think the hard part is I want to keep naming men. No, I got you. That's why we just got to have you back. We got to have you back, and we'll just every time we'll bring you got to bring us three women, one man that we all should be following and listening to. Well, that's easy, right? We can do that. 
There you go. I think Sarah Spain is one I'd lift up right now, certainly. Um, as far as the podcast world, yes. the analysts, um, obviously Doris Burke. I mean, Doris is fantastic in the basketball world. I honestly, I think I, we talked about this. David Gunn, you listen to him on our leadership deep dive. Him and Kane and I have always, we have championed. I would be on the, the blog boards and the message boards leading the swap Doris from the sideline in the finals to the freaking booth, please, and let her do it and put Mark Jackson on the sideline. <laughs> Let Doris sit with Van Gundy, please. I'm in. I'm all in. I'm on that hill, too. Oh, see, I think I like her. I don't know. I love seeing that tension between Van Gundy and, and Mark Jackson. I love it. I think Jackson just looks miserable. So he nice. does, doesn't he? I mean, I should just give Doris the mic and let her go. I know. Um, I know. But I think for us as men, I think even the fact that you all talked about that and you, you named women, that's the power for you know from your platform, from this podcast, from your coaching positions, your – you're as men in the community, if you are able to not only talk about women, but actually name women in leadership positions in sports, that is going to be the shift where we start seeing more women in the field. You know, yeah. um, yep. you know Becky Hammonds. I'm sorry, I'm going off. No, man. no, that's right. I love it. I love it. Becky Hammonds and what Popovich did of giving her an opportunity. Right. She created her stuff. She For wasn't sure. lucky. She put in the work. Yep. But Popovich was, I mean, non-discriminatory. He's going to put the best person forward. Yep. Becky Hammonds was that. Yep. Right? So you were seeing more women coming into the fold. And and I love, in that same topic, live uh, Coach Muff McGraw's presser during the women's final. Four oh, year, yeah. You know, about not hiring women. Well, or not hiring men, excuse me. Well, yeah, why would she? Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and so I would, you know, anybody else who's listening that wants to, to read that article, watch her press interview. Her presser is great when she goes on a pretty, about a 90 second, just uh, gets on her soapbox and just speaks it around. She's tired of firsts for women. It's 2019, yeah. you know? And, and so I think just from her platform of hiring women and keeping women in the fold, we need more women coaches. Yep. And, you know, I'll bring it back to the home. We got two girls at the house. I don't want them. They're not going to get coached by me. It's not because I don't know the game well enough, for, but I want that athletic part to be another woman who would mm-hmm. be my goal for mm-hmm. them to have a, a, a strong leader where they can they can see it, they can be it. Yeah. And, and that's what I want through sports for them, not their scholarships or whatnot. All those other things that we've learned from team sports, those are the opportunities my partner and I try to put in place have our kids play team sport so having more women coaches is is what's been missing here uh, and i'll speak to boise idaho right now that that what am i doing for my position in form yeah. so that's part of my 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 question to myself is how are we as am i as a man talking about more women's sports talking about women coaches and then talking to you know it's a, the coaching world's a small world so yeah Having link those inklings with men in positions of power, like why don't you hire more women for women's sports and start there? Yep. Well, hey man, listen, we got it. Uh, you got me motivated. See, we got before we let you go, we got to sign off. The only reason you and I got connected for this, and hopefully many other connections later on down the line between the two of us, I got to shout out Carly Rohner, uh, campus advocate coordinator and attorney general, sexual assault tax force here in Oregon, who you got to meet at a conference, yes, and then she virtually connected us 
through email because she's one of the main reasons we have a successful character development program from her time here at Willamette is getting me information and vetting information I was putting out there. So we got to give Carly, you know, the, the, the benefit of even providing us with this opportunity to, to link up and I'll make sure I text her this, this link to say, I hope we didn't embarrass you talking on here together. But hey, you're the man. I'm so impressed with what you're doing. We got to get you back on. I hope you and I obviously continue uh, our relationship and developing. And I'm going to steal damn near everything you've you've told us tonight. Uh, but this was awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, coach, I appreciate the opportunity. Again, you're giving you're giving credence to this work and, and how you are leading leading these young men. That's the power, man. So I appreciate what you all are doing. And uh, thanks for making time to have me on. Content reminder, the opinions expressed on the Cross the Streams podcast are those of the host and the guests alone and do not reflect the opinions of the institutions, universities, or businesses that employ the hosts or the guests.